Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Evan. It's Chris. Hey guys, it's Kayla. It's Evan. It's Chris. And welcome to Podcentrics. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Podstetrics. So today we've got a really cool episode to give you guys today. It's a little bit different to what we usually do. And a very special guest with us here today. A very special guest. So welcome, Chris. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> no worries. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, a second year doctor this year, so just started my resident year this year. So met Evan through that a couple of months ago, um, doing an aged care job. And yeah, I've got an interest in infectious diseases, uh, which we'll talk about a bit uh, later on in the podcast. But um, yeah, that's a bit of a brief spiel. Yeah. Beautiful. And do you want to tell us a little bit about how your specialty intertwines with obstetrics? Yeah, sure. So I think as we'll discuss at length uh, during the podcast, um, there are several important infections that can cause consequences for both mum and baby uh, around pregnancy, which we'll discuss later. And probably is the most obvious intersection of, of ID and obstetrics. Yeah. Um, uh, and just infectious disease or ID, why do you want to pursue a <laughs> speciality in infectious disease? Yeah, so I think I've been interested in it probably since early in medical school. Um, I did my science degree before starting med school uh, in biochemistry and was always quite interested in kind of the molecular sort of, you know, aspects of biology. And I think ID, um, you know, it's also quite, intri- it quite involves uh, understanding how, how small things and, and bugs cause disease, which I find pretty interesting. Um, and also, I've, I've also got an interest in public health too. So it's, I think ID is also a good um, interface with public health, as we're seeing now. Yeah. And over, I think the, the, the silver fox, Brett well, Sutton, yeah. is an ID physician, isn't he? Brett Sutton? Yeah. I think he might is be he? an ED one, I think. Oh. I think he might be an emergency doctor. Oh, but I'm, Google, I'm not sure. Mm, Google. Yeah, true. Pull out of Google. Right. <laughs> well, I suppose before we start off with a case, we should we start off with a medical course. disclaimer. disclaimer. Yeah. So we are not medical professionals, even though Chris is one. Chris um, is, not us. <laughs> but this podcast is not meant to be for medical advice. If you do have any queries or concerns, please see your healthcare provider. So like with all of our other content episodes, we're going to start off with a case. So Maggie is a 27-year-old G1P0 who has gone to see her GP as she has been trying to get pregnant and has recently missed her period. She also had done a home pregnancy test, which was positive. Her GP organises a serum beta HCG, which, come back, which comes back as positive. He then recommends some blood tests she should have done, including some which screen for common infections during pregnancy. At the follow-up appointment, the GP informs Maggie that she has tested negative for these infections. At approximately the 31-week mark, Maggie has her niece and nephew visit her. They regularly attend childcare and she notices that they both have extremely red cheeks. After some Googling, she is concerned as she thinks they could potentially have slap cheek. So she goes to visit her GP again. Her GP reassures her that the chance of getting this infection is low as her and her partner have been vaccinated, but he checks her bloods to ensure. This also returns a negative result. Yeah, so let's start off with, I guess, what torch infections are. And they're really infections that result in congenital abnormalities. And we care about them because they lead to severe morbidity and mortality during pregnancy. So what this means is they can result in disability um, and they can even result in death. So they're quite severe. And generally, we like to say that the earlier the infection is, the, the greater the risk and the greater the severity of severe disease. Again, the risk depends on the timing to the presentation of the toxic substance yeah. um, or to the bacteria or to the virus. Yeah. Generally, most of them have mild implications and good outcomes, but some are bad. And these infections are, are, are kind of special because they're passed from mum to baby in utero. And yeah. we think about this as vertical transmission. Yeah. 
So literally through the placenta. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So torch infections can be treated quite early and preventative strategies are really, really important. So one thing that we want to ensure is that women who are of childbearing age are vaccinated for MMR and things like varicella virus. Yeah, and MMR is your measles, mumps and rubella virus. So torch infections generally make up 2 to 3% of congenital abnormalities. And we do see some common, I guess, trends in babies that are suffering from things like torch infections. So one of the first things that we see is jaundice, and that might be something that you guys have heard of before, but it's really the yellowing of the skin, the whites of the eyes, and they're really as a result of increased levels of bilirubin. Yeah. Yeah. So other things that we see could be lethargy. I can't pronounce Lethargy. 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 And this is really a baby that's quite listless, that's not moving that much. Yeah, so that's really... um... Say it. Oh my God. Other things... It's (laughs) It's really late. It is quite late. So other things like growth retardation as well as a large liver and spleen. And if you thought I had trouble saying lethargy before, wait till you hear this. (laughs) So hepatosplenic. When, no, I can't do it. Hepatosplenomegaly. Thank you. That was so close. <laughs> so let's go through some really common torch infections with Chris. So Chris, do you want to tell us what torch actually stands for? Yeah, so torch is an acronym. Um, so sort of the T, R, C and H stand for specific infections. The O is usually sort of talked about as other. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll, we'll discuss um, these in more detail during the show, but just to sort of in- introduce. So T stands for toxoplasmosis. O, um, other usually sort of um, includes syphilis, varicella, as well as parvovirus B19. Um, R stands for rubella. C is for cytomegalovirus or CMV. And the H is for herpes simplex virus, also called HSV. Yeah, great. And I guess the way we're kind of going to run through this today is Chris will be taking us through most of the infections and we'll be giving a little bit of input. But we're running it, the way we've broken it up is the actual infection, how we diagnose it, how, how mum gets it, when the greatest risk of transmission to the fetus is, yep. how mum might present, how baby will present, the risk of the fetal infection, how we prevent it, and then how we manage it. Yeah. Long list. Yeah, so let's start off first with toxic. <laughs> things to get through. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, okay. I feel like Evan made it sound like more than it was. <laughs> it's really just one thing. Okay. It's yeah. like... We'll zoom through it as well. <laughs> so let's start off with toxoplasmosis, Chris. Sure. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. The sort of bug here is a, what's called a... Protozoa. Protozoa, correct. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for helping out, Evan. So, and the bug is called Toxoplasma gondii. And sort of the main sources um, of this, like, for humans that mum might be uh, advised to avoid would be things like raw meat, unpasteurized uh, goat's milk, as well as cat feces and urine. And it can be given to baby by the placenta as we um, heard in the introduction. So general sort of prevention advice would be to to avoid um, raw or um, meat that's been poorly cooked, to wash hands after gardening, to wash raw veggies, and also to minimize contact with young kittens and their litter. Yeah, um, so I think often you, like mum is advised during our pregnancy to number one never change the litter box for yeah. a cat but also to avoid sand pits and make sure sand pits are covered yeah at night. sand pits are really common yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, i think as well the other cool thing about toxoplasmosis gondii from memory is that it changes its antigens right on its surface like quite regularly so i think going back to to undergrad um obviously everything has an antigen on it a specific antigen and toxoplasmosis changes it regularly so the body finds it really hard to, to attack it yeah yeah 
Well, it makes sense as to why we don't have really any preventative measures yeah. for it in terms yeah. of like vaccines and stuff. Exactly, yeah. It's yeah. more the management after, right? Yeah. Mm. So the highest risk of mum to baby transmission is actually in the third trimester, um, but the consequences for the baby are actually greatest earlier on in pregnancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Overall sort of risk of fetal infection is about, about one in two, um, but does sort of increase across gestation. Mm-hmm. Okay, and how would mum feel like if she had this infection? Yeah, so it's... Really, actually, some um, mothers might feel nothing at all, might be yeah. completely um, yeah. free of symptoms, but others might have sort of a mild flu-like or viral-type illness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a bit run down, um, sort of tired um, yeah. would be, you know, sort of, yeah, very sort of non-specific symptoms. Yeah. Um, so tricky for, you know, a mum to know that they might have toxo. And we detect it with a blood test, right? Yeah, so it's uh, serology. So a couple of different antibodies um, that will be positive in the blood if mum's been exposed to toxoplasmosis. So, I mean, this will probably come up during the podcast, but there's sort of, for antibodies, there are several types. Um, there are two that we sort of talk about a lot with, with this topic, which are IgM and IgG. So sort of, sort of roughly speaking, um, IgM generally sort of can signify a recent exposure or infection with, with the pathogen. And IgG sort of generally more reflects sort of longer term past infection many months or years ago. And if someone, yeah, was, for example, had a you know, positive IgM, negative IgG, you might think they might have a recent infection. If they have a negative IgM, positive IgG, you might think they've been infected um, many months or years ago. Yeah. Positive for both can also imply a recent infection too for many of these torch infections mm-hmm. for so you know if, if mum did present with you know sort of a had concern for toxo either from exposure to any of those things like raw meat or cat litter then um you know we could do a blood test we'd look for both the igm and igg antibodies um in her serum um and sort of the igm actually can stay positive for several months um, or even years after exposure mm-hmm. but sort of um if the level of IgG was rising, that with a positive IgM can be sort of more specific for recent infection in the last three months or so. Mm-hmm. And sort of, you know, if there was, if there were positive findings on the serology, um, so if we we're pretty sure that mum had been exposed in the recent part to, to toxo, then sort of the option to confirm that there was fetal transmission would be to do what's called amniocentesis, which is sampling of the am- amniotic fluid, so the kind of the fluid that surrounds the baby in utero. Um, so they could pass a needle, get a sample of that fluid, and do a test on that called PCR, um, which would be able to tell us if there was actually toxo in the in the fluid that um, surrounds the baby. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess how would baby present, really? So generally about three-quarters of babies are unsymptomatic, when they're, or asymptomatic, sorry, when they're born with... Uh, <laughs> unsymptomatic. When they're born with uh, toxoplasmosis. But the main presentation finding is chorioretinitis. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, you're right, Evan. So yeah, about... Th- Three quarters uh, can be can be fine at birth. There's what's called a congenital toxoplasmosis sort of syndrome, mm-hmm. which yeah, so sort of some of the features, yeah, as you mentioned, so retinal scarring, chorioretinitis, mm-hmm. intracranial calcification, yeah, hydrocephalus, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really important, I guess, the intracranial calcifications for any med students listening. Because uh, toxo is intracranial, and then your kind of scattered lesions are in your CMV, which we'll talk about a bit later. As well as, you know, uh, big liver and spleen as well can be a feature. Mm-hmm. Um, pneumonia, low platelets, and large lymph nodes or mm-hmm. myocarditis can happen as well. They're all yeah. features of... And those um, low platelets as well that Chris talked about, commonly referred to as thrombocytopenia, also results in this particular rash that we sometimes call a blueberry muffin rash um, as well. And you can give that a Google if you want to have a look at how that presents. Yeah. yeah. Also worth noting too, so you know, even in infants or neonates who who are fine at birth, there can still be um, longer term sort of sequels of toxo. So mm-hmm. um, 
if there is concern either from mum about the recent exposure to Toxo or there were sort of positive PCR findings pre-partum, then you would you know still want to keep monitoring baby for some time to make sure there were no adverse effects that, that come to pass after um, baby's born. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the management of toxoplasmosis for a little bit, Chris. Yeah, sure. It sort of depends a little bit on timing here for, for treatment. So there is a antibiotic called spiromycin, which is actually not very commonly used in Australia, but that can be given from the time of maternal infection. So it can be given sort of, you know, prior to 18 weeks gestation, can be given to mum um, until there's a diagnosis um, in utero. Um, that can be used to help to prevent fetal morbidity um, from toxo. Yeah. Also sort of read that, so apparently it doesn't easily cross the placenta, this drug, spiromycin, so doesn't really help for treating like, fetal infection yeah. itself it's more for, it's yeah. more for mum to, yeah. to, to, to treat mm-hmm. but sort of beyond 18 weeks gestation there are some drugs that we can give for the fetus itself so there's a bit of a mouthful that these three but um <laughs> so it's pyrimethamine sulfadiazine um with folinic acid can be given in combination after 18 weeks gestation to treat fetal infection specifically also so worth noting that the pyrimethamine and sulfadiazine can be toxic in the first trimester so that's why we I would only recommend that they're given sort of post-18 weeks of gestation. And and I know that toxoplasmosis is regularly tested for in America, but not so much here in Australia. I wonder if that's because they have more cases there. I was going to say, isn't it majority of the time not so much domestic cats, but rather than... Yeah, I'm not quite sure, but maybe, because they do have a lot of of feral cats in America. So, like, for example... (laughs) Like, my neighbour keeps his cat in his house. On I'm a leash. This, <laughs> on a leash. This yeah. guy comes out with a straight face nearly every afternoon with his cat on a leash. He's got a, it just walks along the balcony too. It's not like he takes it outside. I reckon that cat's got toxic. <laughs> and that's your cat's not likely to have toxic. Hopefully he can't hear you. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't listen to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. All right, so we've covered toxo. Let's move on to our other group now. So let's start with syphilis. Sure, so syphilis uh, is a type of bacterium. It's what's called a spirochete, and the full name for it is Treponema pallidum. Yeah. is the full name for spirochete this. Spirochete just meaning, meaning spiral-like, so it looks yeah. like a corkscrew. Like exactly. literally, like yeah. when you look under it, yeah. under a microscope, you can see a corkscrew, yeah. Um, so syphilis actually is one of the bugs that's routinely screened for at the first antenatal visit for all, all women yep. um, with a blood test. And the test actually can be a little bit complicated to kind of explain, but there are sort of a couple of initial tests. Um, one of them is called RPR, the other one's called VDRL. And if they're positive, then there are confirmatory tests that are done afterwards, um, which are more specific they're called um, sort of yeah, specific anti-trypanemal tests so either an FTA uh, which is a fluorescent trypanema antibody or a TPHA which is another type of trypanemal test mm-hmm. um, and this is just looking for the body's reaction to the syphilis and specifically looking for that I guess yep. for any of our listeners yeah exactly yeah so syphilis um, as many of our listeners might be aware of is uh Sexually transmitted disease? Correct, correct. Well, I think it's called sexually transmitted infection. 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 Yeah. And I really feel yeah. sorry for any Subaru owners. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think WRX, yeah. yeah. Good point, actually, good point. I would uh, sell mine to it. Man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, make nice STI. So, yeah. <laughs> Stick with the Impreza, just a normal model. Yeah. So, syphilis can be transmitted at any time in pregnancy uh, between T1 and T3. And by T1 and T3, we mean times trimester 1. Yep. Trimester yep. 3, yep. yep. And so the, the syphilis bug, the spirochete, 
can cross the placenta to cause a congenital syphilis syndrome. Um, this actually can cause sort of quite significant rates of perinatal mortality, um, as well as some other clinical features as well. So I'll just run through sort of a list of them, but you can have uh, osteochondritis, you can have a, a rash on the palms and soles of the feet, nasal discharge, again, a big liver and spleen, anemia, intrauterine growth restriction, fetal hydrops, small brain, microcephaly, pneumonitis, again, some low platelets, which can cause a particular rash, as we covered with toxoplasmosis, as well as some eye manifestations. So a uveitis or a choreoretinitis can also be manifestations. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have some really like specific ways they present as well, right? Like you've got your teeth, so you've got your Hutchison's teeth, which literally look like filed down teeth. You've got your saber shins, so the shins kind of curve inwards. Um, and then you've also got one other, the nose, the saddle, saddle nose, nose deformity as well that you can have. So what does that very, look like? I've never seen one. It kind of just looks like the nose with like a, like a, like a, like a dip. <laughs> like a, a dip. Um, right. Okay. So, so kind of like, like your nose. No, okay. <laughs> Disrespect. The dis <laughs> blatant disrespect. <laughs> also worth noting too, so for although all women are routinely screened for syphilis at the first antenatal visit, um, in high-risk populations, so where there's a risk of syphilis um, being contracted during pregnancy, we also recommend repeat serology tests mm -hmm. um, between 28 and 32 weeks gestation yeah. and at delivery as well. Yeah, and I guess another reason why we worry about syphilis as well is the risk of preterm labour. Yeah, so that's a big, that's a, a big, big, big risk for syphilis. Yeah. yeah, which is something that we actually haven't covered yet, and mm -hmm. I think we should. Yeah. yeah. Next episode, maybe. Yeah. Next episode. <laughs> Do you want to come back? <laughs> Ask somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so one of the things with syphilis that it, it's luckily a, a very uh, treatable infection and it's very responsive to penicillin but the sort of the dosing depends on the type of syphilis um, that we think that the mother might have and I'll just sort of briefly discuss this so it can be a little bit complicated but syphilis can be sort of described in various stages so primary secondary latent and tertiary and the risk of fetal infection actually is highest with a primary syphilis infection and decreases to the risk being negligible for tertiary syphilis. Just to sort of briefly discuss what these mean, so primary syphilis, all one might have is uh, what's called a shanker or a, just a, a, an ulcer around the genitals. Is that painless or painful? Do you know? I think it's painless. I think it's painless too. Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. And then so secondary can be a more systemic illness, so you can have fever, rash, hepatitis, big lymph nodes, as well as um, meningitis can be a... Uh, can occur in, in secondary syphilis. Instead of latent syphilis, where the risk of fetal infection drops down to being low, the mum uh, can have no symptoms at all. And then the tertiary syphilis, there can be cardiovascular, um, CNS uh, manifestations for, for tertiary syphilis. You know, um, as well as determining the risk of fetal infection, um, also informs treatment as well. Um, so for what we call sort of early syphilis, which includes primary, secondary, or early latent syphilis. The, the drug is what's called benzathine penicillin, so it's a type of penicillin. It's a, a single intramuscular 1.8 gram dose, which is just given as a once-off treatment um, for what we call early syphilis. For late syphilis, so if mum's had syphilis for either an unknown duration or for longer than two years, then same drug, so um, the same penicillin, um, but given IM once weekly for, for three weeks. So three doses a week apart so the next one we'll move on to is varicella and varicella is something that i'm assuming a lot of people have actually heard of before um so do you want to run us through what varicella is yeah so varicella sort of the the virus is called the varicella zoster virus it's a type of 
virus from the herpes family, but people will commonly know it as the virus that causes chickenpox and also causes shingles, um, usually in later life. So, sort of mum, you know, um, if mum was to have a, a varicella infection, symptoms might include fever, um, malaise, as well as Trevor knows the classic sort of chickenpox <laughs> type. Uh, yeah, vis- vi- yeah, yeah. Uh, like a vesicular rash. Yeah, yeah. So, both vesicular and itchy lesions can be quite uh, widespread. But also worth noting, so I think um, for pregnant women with varicella are also at increased risk of ACD and pneumonia can be an yeah. additional complication of maternal varicella as well, which is worth noting. Um, but the, the risk of infection to the fetus um, is highest between 12 and 20 weeks gestation um, at about 2%. I think there are some cases been reported up to 28 weeks gestation, but I think most would occur before 20 weeks. And also I think uh, if, if mum uh, has lesions between five days pre up to two days post delivery, there can also be a risk of perinatal infection as well with varicella. Um, it's a highly contagious virus, as people Jimmy already know yeah. from chickenpox. Uh, <laughs> it spreads like wildfire. <laughs> so, um, and it's transmitted um, either with direct contact of, of the lesions as well as um, in uh, airborne, airborne droplets as well. Um, and is given to the baby by the placenta. So, yeah, in terms of, I suppose, the fetal consequences, um, so can cause quite a severe congenital varicella syndrome, and that can include so limb aplasia, chorioretinitis, cataracts, cortical atrophy, cutaneous scars, intrauterine growth restriction, hydrops, as well as preterm labour slash prematurity as well can also be consequences of congenital varicella. And then as for sort of the diagnosis, so it can be diagnosed clinically but based on the appearance uh, in mum of those classic vesicles. But yeah, if there is suspicion um, that mum has had varicella during pregnancy, then um, there's a recommendation for ultrasound to be to be commenced at least five weeks following mum being infected uh, to monitor for any fetal uh I think it's obvious yeah. abnormalities, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And we don't um, routinely use amniocentesis for this just because of the risk profile benefit. Yeah. Um, there is a high risk of infection with things like amniocentesis. And, yeah, and but, yeah. but also the fact that, you know, having a negative amniocentesis result doesn't predict. Doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So really the benefit yeah. is quite low with amniocentesis. And it's invasive. Yeah. 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 It's yeah, very it's not, infective. Yeah, yeah. And also, also a negative result doesn't necessarily exclude um, congenital varicella yeah. either, so... Yeah few reasons why it's not routinely advised but also i mean importantly can have actually a very high mortality rate for mm-hmm. neonates so as high as 30 percent mm-hmm. wow. um, for varicella uh, in the neonate and this is sort of more what i was talking about later with uh, the sort of you know if mum has varicella five days pre up to two days post delivery then this can put the neonate at risk of, of this so, so i think they talk about the risk being increased sort of any time within two weeks of delivery, um, but especially for those five days before and two days afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think so this, you know, if, if um, the baby gets varicella in that window, then they don't get the antibodies from mum, uh, the RTG that goes by the placenta, which would happen if the infection occurred earlier in pregnancy. Yeah, nice. And what about um, prevention? Yeah, so the, the main thing is vaccination yeah. um, and vaccination before pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Do you want to repeat that just for people that don't understand that you need to be vaccinated? <laughs> Just from a, from a real doctor, please. L- louder from the back. Vaccines work. Vaccines are important. Yes. And they prevent varicella infection in both mum and baby. So, yeah, so the that's the mainstay of prevention for varicella, would be vaccination. And for all the vaccine companies out there, we'll post Chris's BSBN account number. <laughs> that's, right. that's a good point. <laughs> 
You can work directly as well. <laughs> um, I take checks too. And the so, but if, um, <laughs> but if um, if mum hasn't been vaccinated before pregnancy, there is something called zoster immunoglobulin or ZIG, which essentially are antibodies to varicella zoster virus, which can be given within 96 hours of of contact if the mum's non-immune, i.e. not been vaccinated mm-hmm. or not had prior exposure to varicella um, mm-hmm. previously. And this sort of, the, the zoster immunoglobulin reduces the occurrence of maternal disease, but it isn't completely effective. So there is still a risk um, of mum developing chickenpox even following a ZIG injection. And then treatment for either mum or baby um, can be with the drug called acyclovir, which is a, a very commonly used um, antiviral medication. So next we're going to talk about parvovirus. So this is another one of the, I guess, falls under the other groups. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what parvovirus is? Because I parvovirus. Yeah. Parvovirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got a few names actually. <laughs> Not including parvovirus, but a few other names. <laughs> it actually ties in nicely with a case from before, which Evan introduced yeah. earlier on. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, a few names. So. Um, sort of full virus name is parvovirus B19, but it also is known as erythema infectiosum as well as fifth disease. As well as slap cheek. Yeah, true, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Infectiosum sounds like a Harry Potter. Like I know, I started floating when he said that. Spell. <laughs> we got in there. So many names. Uh, so parvovirus usually only causes a very mild illness in mum. And the sort of, I think most common symptom is uh, arthritis, so a sort of symmetrical multi-joint um, arthritis that can last for weeks to months. Mm-hmm. And in young children um, it says red cheeks, which is why they call it slap cheeks disease. Yeah. Yep. Genius, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've always wondered though, like, if I was a kid and I got slap cheek, mm-hmm. would I have red cheeks? <laughs> I'm not I don't think so. I don't think I would though. Like, I don't As think... As in for a brown person? I think, yeah, it depends on the mm-hmm. colour of your skin. Like, would a darker skinned person have Good question. red sure. cheeks? I actually not don't sure. know. Not sure at all, yeah. yeah. Do you want me to slap you and we can find out? I don't like that. <laughs> okay, I can't wait to do it. <laughs> can post the photo later of that, yeah. No, I've seen you blush before. <laughs> yeah, but I don't go red. Oh. I'm not blushing now. I just sweat a lot. No, not now. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to use this as evidence, please, in a court trial for bullying <laughs> by a senior. <laughs> so, sort of, yeah, the other, you know, mum might also have a, a, a flu-like type illness can be can happen in mum um, but yeah mum can also be symptom free as well so it can be tricky for mum to know that she's got it at all yeah so the yeah highest risk of fetal infection is between 10 and 20 weeks of gestation and the risk is about one in two if, if mum has it if the fetus being infected so unlike sort of the ones we talked about before parvovirus actually isn't associated with the congenital malformation syndrome um, but can cause spontaneous abortion uh, stillbirth and high drops so quite severe consequences um, for the baby potentially and just a quick note i guess as well to the listeners like how we actually get high drops right so severe anemia leads to heart failure which then leads to edema severe edema so fluid buildup which is why we end up with this thing called high drops fatalis so the parvovirus actually um, is one of the ones for which routine screening antenatally is not uh, recommended mm-hmm. um, but if there is concern about infection or exposure then Again, um, there are some antibody blood tests that we can do to work out if mum's been exposed. Um, and if there is concern for infection, then there can be 
follow up with ultrasound uh, to monitor the fetus for any signs of hydrops that might develop over the course of the pregnancy. And I mean, also sort of as an extra thing there, we can also uh, do PCR for parvovirus uh, on either amniotic fluid or fetal cord blood to confirm fetal infection as well, but yeah. Mm-hmm. So I suppose for prevention, sort of the mainstay would be basic hygiene advice, so being very careful with, with hand hygiene and avoiding contact with people um, who who might uh, be infectious or have... have yeah. uh, and kids who attend childcare is one big one for yeah. this. Yeah. And um, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about the management of parvovirus, given it's a bit more of an obstetric rather than infectious disease type... Uh, yeah, so really when we think about the management of uh, parvovirus, we think about the management of the sequelae, right? Mm. So we're thinking about the management of hydrops fatalis. So really here, first of all, we're looking at um, how we're going to diagnose the severity of that. Um, and this is really looking at the uh, peak flow through the middle cerebral artery. Yeah. Um, so really the way this works is um, generally the higher the flow through the middle cerebral artery, the kind of the worse off we think baby is. Is that right? Or is it the other way around? Um, don't quote me on this, but I think it's the higher the middle cerebral artery, the worse we think baby is, because it means that baby's in some form of distress. And so if the middle cerebral artery pressures are getting so high, uh, too high, then we know that we need to do something for the anemia, and generally this is through an intrauterine transfusion. So we'll give baby blood um, through a needle that's pa- passed um, through mum's abdomen um, directly into the baby's cord. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Tense. They're very quite quite intense actually. Yeah. And I suppose yeah, given um parvovirus doesn't cause a congenital malformation syndrome, this is one of the infections um for which termination wouldn't normally be um an option. Yeah. And generally babies that do have high drops so the the actual mortality is quite high. Yeah. So. Um I think yeah, I think between I think so yeah, the risk of fetal loss following infection in mum. Um, I think it's about between sorry yeah so it's ten percent um, prior to twenty weeks gestation um, mm-hmm. but falls right down to less than one percent after twenty weeks gestation mm-hmm. um, and, and the rate of high drops is what like fifteen percent yeah yeah roughly yeah it's really yeah. high yeah it's yeah. very yeah. high it doesn't sound it but it is mm. yeah yeah for a serious complication yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. well let's move on to Next rubella up. so we're back to our back to the R back yeah. to the R yeah. <laughs> so we just finished other and now we're onto the R yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, again, rubella would have been something that you've heard of if you've been vaccinated because you would have heard of the MMR vaccine and rubella is part of that. So let's talk a little bit about what this virus does, really. Yeah, sure. So uh, rubella is uh, transmitted. It's very contagious um, and it's transmitted coughing, sneezing, spluttering, otherwise you can get it and goes to baby right at the centre again. The highest risk of complications for the fetus are in the first trimester. Um, and it's quite uncommon for there to be fetal sequelae after 20 weeks gestation. So again, rubella is one of the infections for which um, there's routine testing um, recommended at the start, at the first uh, antenatal visit. So um, with um, antibodies for rubella, we can test for them. And yeah, it can also can confirm fetal infection um, if necessary uh, with PCR mm-hmm. um, on the chorionic villus, which... Yeah. Evan might be able to describe what that is in more detail. Yeah, so Just really the, the chorionic villus is another form of invasive testing that we can do during pregnancy, and it's generally done earlier. And here we're sampling the fluid or the yeah the fluid that surrounds the placenta, really, in that chorionic space, yeah. and that's done earlier. And then we have amniocentesis, which is the amniotic fluid, fluid which is done a little baby, bit later. Yeah. yeah, so I think chorio... Um, chorio um, is done around 11 weeks, if I'm not mistaken, and then amniocentesis is about 15 weeks. Okay. So a bit later. Yep. Yep. 
And I think as well, like, rubella, I don't know why, Chris, but you might know. Do you know why it's called German measles? I've just uh, heard it referred to as that. I think it's a less severe form. I think I've been told before, but I forgot. Yeah, I don't know why. It's like a ward question that doctors always seem to ask. Like, oh, so what's it normally called? And then, yeah, and then I just never know. A lot of bugs have two or three or four or five names. Yeah. (laughs) Confusing. Yeah, one's not enough. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Make it too easy. (laughs) But yeah, so for mum, rubella, you know, might only cause a very mild um, illness. It can be a a rash. Fever, uh, at large lymph nodes around the back of the ears or back of the head, as well as some joint pains. Um, but the rash um, can be absent in roughly half of um, maternal infections. Um, and the rash can also be quite nonspecific and can resemble other rashes, so it's not really a especially helpful indicator of, of infection with rubella. But so despite it only causing very mild symptoms for mum, can cause devastating consequences for the baby unfortunately so there is a congenital um, syndrome that's caused by rubella um, and the most common malformations uh, include things like cataracts um, deafness and some cardiac abnormalities Mm -hmm. and can also cause uh, fetal growth restriction can cause uh, fetal death in utero um, as well as developmental delay as well and sort of as mentioned before the sort of highest risk of complications um, is for first trimester transmission. Um, so I think as high as 80 to 85% um, is the incidence of, of defects um, in the first trimester, whereas sort of after 18, 20 weeks, um, usually only fetal, fetal growth um, restriction is sort of the only manifestation seen at that late stage. Um, so again, you want to ask what the mainstay of prevention is, Kayla? <laughs> It's a common theme today. But, uh, <laughs> it's vaccination. I don't even want to say it yet. It's vaccination. So, again, time for the checkbook to get out. Um, but, yeah, so for rubella. Um, so, yeah, the, the mainstay of prevention for rubella um, is with vaccination. Um, so, as mentioned before, the MMR vaccine um, covers uh, for rubella as well. Um, that's the mainstay of prevention. And really, we can't stress the whole MMR vaccine thing enough, just to put it in perspective of how severe congenital rubella syndrome is, generally most patients or most mothers will elect to have an abortion when because rubella is found out because the, the actual um, fetal infection and the results of congenital um, rubella syndrome are so severe, severe yeah. and really not compatible with life in a lot of cases. Yeah. Which is really sad to say. But yeah. And I think for, for babies that, um, that do make it through, I think we recommend that they be checked fairly regularly um, between three and six monthly for the first few years of, of life to, to detect uh, for any abnormalities that are related to uh, infection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So now we move on to the C, um, which is our cytomegalovirus or CMV. Yeah, sure. So CMV, um, again, is a type of, of herpes virus and is actually the leading cause of infections congenitally. Um, so I think between sort of 0.64 and 0.7% of congenital infections are caused by CMV. Um, but actually isn't one of the ones that we recommend routine antenatal screening for. But yeah, so it can be given to mum um, either via sexual contact um, as well as um, via blood or organ transfusion, and is given to the baby transplacentally as well as during delivery. It can also be transmitted via breast milk as well. It can be passed on at any stage of pregnancy, so between first and third trimesters, and sort of the average or the sort of overall infection risk to the fetus is about 30% if mum has it. Mm-hmm. So very high. Um, yeah. 
the sort of interestingly, so the risk of uh, for the for, for baby of uh, sort of CNS type um, manifestations is highest with infection in the first half of pregnancy, but for infection later in pregnancy, fetus is more likely to have things like hepatitis, pneumonia, um, sort of more visceral type manifestations of um, of the infection. And so yeah, this is one of the other ones where it can only cause a very mild illness in mum, so either nothing at all or just a mild flu-like type illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, for for baby can be quite devastating again. So roughly, I think sort of 10% of infants uh, can have symptoms at birth and about 10% might develop symptoms a bit later on in life. But sort of of these, about 10% um, unfortunately will, will die and about half um, will have permanent consequences of, of CMV infection. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of things that might, they might have, um, nervous system type uh, symptoms, so uh, cerebral calcification, hydrocephalus, microcephaly, deafness, chorioretinitis. Mm-hmm. Um, and in CMV, we should point out as well, they're periventricular calcification, so mm-hmm. around the ventricles, whereas in toxo, they're intraventricular. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah, in terms of diagnosis again, so although we don't screen for it routinely and antenatally, um, we can do antibody blood tests um, and also can isolate the virus directly in bodily fluids like urine, for example, and can confirm fetal infection. We have the option of doing amniocentesis um, again for CMV, so if that's done after 21 weeks gestation as well as at least six weeks after mum's been infected um, that can be a, a way to confirm fetal infection mm-hmm. um, with the, again a, a PCR type DNA test on uh, for, for for CMV but sort of the the combination of both PCR on amniotic fluid for CMV as well as fetal ultrasound um, both help to diagnose um, fetal uh, CMV mm-hmm. so yeah although normal fetal ultrasound can be reassuring um, Baby, unfortunately, still can have serious consequences afterwards, despite normal um, fetal imaging, um, particularly uh, hearing loss. Um, bit of a siren. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> uh, it's a vaccine <laughs> company. <laughs> Personal delivery of the check that That's you right, requested. Yeah. It's, it's about time. <laughs> Been waiting five minutes for that. So yeah, so if uh, the baby um, develops normally by 12 months, that usually predicts a sort of normal uh, course of development longer term. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's quite uncommon for there to be manifestations um, after about two years of age. Um, so prevention, this time not a vaccine. So, um, <laughs> Give that is, check back. Yeah. <laughs> so this is more to do with uh, good hand hygiene um, and avoiding sort of high-risk situations, so um, sort of young children or another sort of... They're <laughs> so problematic. Yeah, they can, <laughs> <laughs> they can be. So, um, yeah, so CMV setting children should be avoided by uh, pregnant mums. And, yeah, Just glad wrap them or something. Like <laughs> Just not over yeah. their heads. <laughs> Bubble no. wrap. Bubble wrap. Definitely don't medically advise <laughs> don't the covering that. of them. When you say glad wrap a child, I just wanted to make sure. Just in case anyone didn't know that was a joke. <laughs> Yeah. As are all the vaccine jokes, they're all jokes. There is no money is changing hands at all between any vaccine company <laughs> and any of the Fox Networks team, just to make it clear for anybody. Yeah, we did not make who, money who for this. Your Gucci, sh- your Gucci shoes would say otherwise, right? I've got your RM7. <laughs> 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 
I'm actually a farmer on weekend. Pretty much information. Um, like a beets farmer? Oh, like, <laughs> so I was watching The Office. <laughs> so, unfortunately, there's no specific treatment for CMV. So the, sort of, the mainstay of management is surveillance um, for fetal defects using serial ultrasound and maybe even fetal MRI to pick up any fetal abnormalities. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, I was reading some talk in the past about um, something called CMV hyperimmune globulin, which is a bit like the zosteroidea we discussed earlier, but current data doesn't support um, any role for the CMV IG being used to prevent in utero transmission of CMV. So mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, no no real good treatments available at this stage for the CMV. Yeah, okay. Well, let's move on to our final one. So the H... Second last. Second last. Second last. There's another one. I think there's a bonus one at the end. A bonus is a little bit too... All right, well, let's start with... All right, well, H is quite a big one anyway because we're talking about herpes herpes simplex virus. And again, that's something that I'm sure everyone's kind of heard of before. Yeah. (laughs) You could have said I'm sure that's something everyone's got. (laughs) No! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Just me? Just you. Just you. Sorry, mate. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, so herpes, I'm sure everyone would have probably heard of uh, this one before. So a, a viral infection caused by a DNA virus. Um, two main types, herpes uh, simplex virus 1, HSV1 and HSV2. So historically, HSV1 was talked about as causing non-genital infections, so lips, mouth, eyes, etc. Um, HSV2 was more associated with genital infections, but... Um, more recently, HSV-1 actually um, has increased in prevalence um, and causes actually roughly about 40% of genital um, herpes infections with HSV-1. So, yeah, given to mum with sort of intimate... Contact? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and to baby either by the placenta or during delivery itself, yeah. mm-hmm. which we'll so talk about a bit more later. Oh, is, yeah, yeah, no, go on. Yeah, because yeah, I was going to say because... If someone's positive with herpes simplex virus and has active genital warts, we recommend things like a cesarean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But if they don't, then they can deliver normally. Then it's fine, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a very very good point, yeah. So I'll just come to that in a little bit. But just to give some more background about herpes, um, uh, it's diagnosed clinically, so just the appearance of those those lesions. uh, And these are painful lesions. They can be, yes. Akin to painless and syphilis. Yeah. And... Yeah, so as Kelly sort of brought up, um, the sort of the highest risk um, for baby is perinatally um, rather than, so sort of, yeah, via direct contact around delivery um, rather than via the placenta. So I think about 85% of neonatal HSV infections um, are acquired perinatally and sort of only about 5% of HSV fetal infections are um, accounted for by intrauterine or transplacental transmission so this is actually a good point so um sort of routinely for all women um there should be careful examination with a speculum to for active genital herpes lesions um which um, we'll talk about in a sec but will inform um delivery whether that can be vaginal or have to be by cesarean section and also worth noting that uh infection of the neonate is is the most likely uh with primary hsv um, rather than during recurrent episodes um, of, of the B-simplex virus. So, yeah, can for mum, yeah, as mentioned, it can cause quite painful vesicular lesions. Um, and for pregnant mums, that 
primary infection can be more likely to disseminate. And for baby, um, there can be quite a wide sort of spectrum of clinical manifestations. So I generally sort of talked about in three broad categories. Um, so confined to only skin or involvement of the mucosa, uh, there can be herpes encephalitis. Um, and then the sort of the, the third category is disseminated HSV um, with sort of severe multi-organ dysfunction is the third category. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is unfortunately a very high mortality rate with disseminated um, HSV as well as HSV encephalitis. So yeah, so the, as mentioned before, the risk of infection for baby is, is highest around delivery. So if there was concern about there being active uh, herpes lesions, um, then the recommendation would be for um, C-section uh, within six hours of rupture of membranes or the onset of labor if there are lesions at time of delivery. Um, another point that we're mentioning is that we can also give um, suppressive antiviral therapy with, with a cyclovir um, from 36 weeks uh, in women who are known to have recurrent attacks of, of herpes. And as for as for baby, um, so it can be quite complicated the treatment of, um, of herpes for the infant, but um, sort of observation, isolation, um, as well as treatment with the same drug, acyclovir, can be given to the baby um, to treat HSV infection. How would you give it, like, um, IV. IV. Yeah. IV? Yeah, IV, acyclovir, yeah, for baby, yep. Would baby have to be hospitalised for that? So they uh, usually confined yeah. to yeah. NICU? Two to three times a day, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yep. And one to two hours per infusion. That's a long time. Takes a while, yeah. yep. That's yeah. Yep. Yep. So it's be constantly, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Not very fun for anybody, really, yeah, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So now we've covered um, Torch, and now we've got one more, since Chris has decided to kindly put in a so bonus. bonus. Yeah, but this one's yeah. a big one. That is a big like, one. Like, it is an important one. This chair is a big one. That's yeah. a big cheese one. That's a cheesy one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's not get too cheesy. Yeah. So I guess let's talk about listeriosis or listeria monocytogenes. Yeah. So this also could be one that people have, might have heard of before. So uh, listeria is a uh, bacterium, quite a common um, bacterial bug. And sort of classically, it's ingested uh, with poorly cooked meat or seafood. Sort of, you know, fancier things like <laughs> your pate. Things we kind of afford. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about Christo with his vaccine payouts. <laughs> yeah, vaccine payouts. I don't know if you're our Pretty sure he asked why we didn't have caviar for the pizza. <laughs> that we were I found it quite weird, but anyway. That's so what happens when you become a resident, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Loose touch. Yeah. The, the, the Hawaiian just wasn't quite hitting the spot tonight. Look, Hawaiian's <laughs> not the same when you don't eat it in Hawaii, am I right? No, no, no. <laughs> so yeah, there's fancier things like pâtés, small group things that Evan might know more about. Um, as well as contaminated soft cheeses, soft serve ice cream, um, as well as veggies that haven't been adequately washed, um, can all harbour listeria, unfortunately. I want everyone to know that Chris looked me directly in the eyes when he said soft cheeses. <laughs> I don't know why. You're a, you're a fancy man. <laughs> Culture. You're a soft cheese. <laughs> you're the only one sitting here in a shirt. Like. <laughs> so also, uh, annoyingly, listeria can also grow in the fridge. So pregnant mums should also um, avoid eating those aforementioned at-risk foods that have been in the fridge for more than 24 hours as well. So this is sort of, yeah, another one, uh, common theme here, where mum um, doesn't get very sick. Um, so can typically just have a very sort of non-specific flu-like um, febrile illness, maybe some back pain, maybe some shakes. Um, but 
again, can have very severe consequences for, for baby. So can cause premature labour, um, fetal death, um, or even a severe infection uh, that involves lung, liver, nervous system as well. Um, and they sort of all stem from transplacental transmission. Um, so from mum to baby right of the placenta. And I mean, yeah, so although listeria, it's not sort of a, a common bug or infection generally, but it is um, more common in pregnancy uh, than amongst non-pregnant um, people. So that's why we're sort of talking about it here as an extension of the torch infections. Mm -hmm. yeah. So unfortunately, it can also have a very high mortality rate um, for, um, for baby. So as well as causing preterm delivery, um, mortality can be between three um, and even as high as 60%. Um, Wow. Amongst infected neonates yeah. that are born alive, and yeah, so really it's important to sort of um, for the diagnosis to be considered and thought about, just given they can have quite severe consequences. Yeah. Um, so yes, prevention would be sort of avoiding the things that we talked about before. So avoiding those, you know, uh, poorly cooked meats, seafoods, pâtés, small goods, all the things that Evan likes normally. Cheeses. <laughs> uh, You're copping it today. Be worth avoiding. What's <laughs> <laughs> Workplace culture, what can I say? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, and then, so treatment is with antibiotics. So being a bacterial uh, bacterium can be treated with um, antibiotics. So a couple of options here. So um, one of them is ampicillin, a type of penicillin given intravenously um, a few times a day. And then often combined with a, um, a drug called dentamycin, which is a can be quite a... Um, uh, a nasty drug can cause uh, sort of hearing side effects and kidney side effects well, too. Right? Yeah, but um, it's quite effective for listeria, so it can be given um, if there's uh, thought to be severe infection, uh, including listeria meningitis. Yeah, so that's uh, yeah, also, but yeah, so mentioned too, so for listeria as well, sorry, just to sort of round it off as well. <laughs> um, highest risk of transmission is in the third trimester. Mm -hmm. um, so sort of, yeah, mortality for the fetus between 40 and 50% um, for maternal listeriosis in, in second slash third trimester. Um, so sort of important, again, for this to be us to think about listeria um, in any sort of unwell, fre uh, febrile pregnant woman uh, in third trimester should always have listeria thought of as a possible cause. And I think that's a wrap on the on the so torch. So that's torch On done. the torch plus L. Um, <laughs> torch was a huge one. That was that really, was a really big. big episode, that was really yeah. big. That was huge. So, Chris, thank you again so much for your time, for going through everything. But we wanted to have a little bit of a chat now, more about some tips and tricks that you have for any of our listeners, whether they be medicine students or midwifery students, um, in terms of study. Because obviously you've had to study hard to get to where you are now. Um, yeah, so obviously you've had to study very hard to get to how you are now. How do you balance your study and, and your work life and personal life? Yeah, no, thanks, Evan. Uh, so that's a good question. Um, I think uh, sort of, yeah, working now is obviously a big transition to make from being a student for, for a long time. Um, so um, I guess one of the, the pros at this stage, sort of, of, you know, junior doctor being an internal resident, um, mostly sort of no intense formal study required now, which is quite good. So sort of, you know, when you leave work, mostly you could be done with it, um, yeah. which is quite a nice change from being a student. So no sort of nagging feeling of feeling, you know, being, uh, of feeling guilty about not studying for, for 10 hours that day or six hours that day. You can sort of just relax and enjoy your evenings and weekends or the time you have off, which is, which, which is quite nice. Mm -hmm. um, but I suppose, yeah, I mean, during uni, um, 
uh, I guess you know you there's always there's always things you feel like you should be reading or learning or or, or revising um, and I mean yeah like I had a I think a, a pretty fun time overall um, uni both with science before and with with med school afterwards um, but yeah I mean I think um, in terms of yeah sort of I guess tips and tricks I mean I I suppose like I think keeping an open mind is is pretty important I mean uh, uh, it's a very sort of diverse and broad field of medicine and there's so many things that um, are open to you if you go down that pathway so um, it's great if you know what you want to do early on and can you know sort of you know if you know you want to be a brain surgeon from day one like good for you that's fine <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know like um, good for you good luck yeah, good yeah it's, uh, <laughs> see you in 40 years when you get on the program <laughs> Um, you know, but like, you know, I think uh, there's also, you know, there's so many um, chances to be involved, uh, you know, hospital on placement, uh, you know, I think one thing I would say, I think, you know, I think you asked earlier, Evan, like if I could, you know, go back to five years ago and give myself advice, what would I say? Um, I was thinking about it on the drive on the way here, actually, when I was thinking about both the pizza as well as the as <laughs> this question, but um, I, I hope you would have said, get some RM. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, not yet. Um, but I think, like, I mean, I think getting involved um, with all the opportunities that you get given as a student, uh, both at uni and at hospital, I think, um, is is pretty valuable. So, you know, like, if you have friends that are, you know, into something or want to take you to a, you know, a clinic or a public lecture or, like, a committee or some volunteering activity on the weekend or whatever, just, like, go along, you know, like, it's... You never know uh, who you'll meet, or you know who might, or um, you know who, who you might chat with that might uh, give you ideas about you know things that you could get more uh, involved with later on. So I think you know just I think just say yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. It can be exhausting, but I think you know if you can say yes as much as you can with uh, while keeping your sanity, um, I think it can stand you in pretty good stead for having a pretty great experience overall as a student. Um, mm-hmm. So just making the most of. All the opportunities that are that are uh, thrust your way, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that was great. Yeah. Um, now, one thing before we do move on to the case conclusion, there is one mistake that I need to point out that I have mistakenly written um, in the case. So I, we stated that Maggie um, had had a vaccine for parvovirus B nineteen, which I mistakenly confused with the pertussis vaccine. So there is no vaccine given in the antenatal period yeah. for B nineteen. So just to point that out. Yep, no worries. Thanks My for bad. fixing your mistake. My bad. <laughs> Someone's going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so like every content episode, we we started off with a case and we're going to end with our case. So following an uneventful labor at 39 weeks, Maggie delivered a healthy baby girl, Sophia. She felt well equipped to deal with her next pregnancy with all the information she had learned regarding prevention of common infections during pregnancy. Maggie and her partner, Mark, are excited to start their new family. What a good ending. Yeah. At least I wrote that well. Where do you get these names from? <laughs> They're just coming to my head. I'm not going to lie. With Sophia, I typed in top 10 baby girls' names. Yeah, that's a nice name. Yeah, yeah. nice name. Yeah. yeah. Write in the book. I'll send it to Delara after this. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> the short list starts already. <laughs> All right, everyone. So thank you so much for listening. 
thank you so much for Chris as well for giving up his time as a busy doctor to come on this podcast. We really appreciate it. Yeah, um, and it was such a comprehensive episode as well. I thought it, it was, was great. That was probably one of our most in-depth episodes. Definitely. We've ever, definitely. Yeah, done. It was awesome. So it actually makes a difference having a real doctor on an episode, I think. Yeah, rather than <laughs> one that's, <laughs> one that's almost there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Not quite, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find us at Podstetrics. Um, so we're on Linktree, so that's linktree.com forward slash Podstetrics. Uh, if you Google us, all our social media also comes up, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah. And we're also on all major uh, casting platforms, so that's CastBox, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Jesus. And remember to like <laughs> <laughs> remember to like and review our podcast as well on Apple Music if you get it on Apple Music on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. Again, it really helps us, I guess, cater the episodes to what you want. I know, know and what that, we're doing well, what we're not doing so And every well. time we get a like or a review, that one serotonin in Kayla's brain just goes crazy. <laughs> just the one singular one that's left. <laughs> <laughs> so guys, like always, I'm Kayla. I'm Evan. I'm Chris. <laughs> And take care, guys. Take care of yourselves. Stay safe. See you guys.